Welcome to Achieve Wealth through value-add real estate investing. This is the show where the guru hype is banned and you get direct insights from commercial real estate operators. If you're a passive investor, this show can help you better understand investment opportunities. And if you're an active investor, the lessons from each episode can help you to become more effective in your own deals. Now, here's your host, investor and author, James Kandasamy. Hey, audience and listeners, this is James Kandasamy from Achieve Wealth Through Value at Real Estate Investing Podcast. Today, I'm happy to get Ivan Barrett into our show. Ivan is a multifamily owner, manager, syndicator who specializes in large apartment complex in the Midwest. And he has been doing it since 2015 with over $18 million in equity with more than 3,000 units as the uh, primary GP. And uh, he has grown his company, uh, which is Barrett Asset Management, to be best-in-class two-time Inc. 5000 uh, private equity and management firm. And he focuses a lot on equity finance, acquisitions, and company strategy. So currently managing over $300 million in assets, comprise uh, almost uh, 3,500 units. Hey, Ivan, welcome to the show. James, so good to see you, dude. I always love talking to you, man. It's good to be on the show officially. Absolutely, absolutely. I know we, we postponed it a few times, so this is going to be very, very valuable for to me and to my listeners as well. So Ivan, let's get started. I mean, I'm trying to avoid like, how did you get started, right? Because I, I'd want yeah. to be <laughs> taking up too much yeah. time. But let's, let's quickly go through it. How did you get started and how did you end up with $300 million in assets under management? Yeah, you know, for me, it, it all started with one duplex that I, I house hacked. Uh, back in, in 2000, I, I'd wanted to be in real estate my whole life. My dad's in real estate. Uh, he was an attorney, always owned rental properties on the side. A couple of entrepreneurial uncles on both sides of my, of my family that owned apartments, gas stations, car washes, all kinds of, um, of businesses. So at a really early age, I, I wanted to be an entrepreneur and I wanted real estate because I thought, gosh, why would I want a real job? when I could just go out on a lot of property and, and do whatever I want and watch the, uh, the rent checks just come in. So went, went to school, so went to college, went through business school, got a degree in, in real estate finance, uh, got out, ha- house hacked a duplex. For the first eight years, I worked for a, a mentor in, in mostly development, but also property, asset management, uh, all kinds of different uh, jobs um, that I got to, hats that I got to wear working for this real estate developer. And uh, most importantly, I got a front row seat to the great uh, financial crash of 2008. So at a a really young age, huge gift, learned I wasn't as smart as I thought I was, learned that I was doing real estate the wrong way. And that's when I really started modeling uh, multifamily companies because um, I had always wanted to own apartments, but I also saw that in a downturn, um, those multifamily companies got bigger, they got stronger. They, they acquired more assets uh, because of the way they were financed. And, and so that really uh, was the impetus to get me started in my own uh, pursuits. BAM actually started in 2010 uh, as a property management company first, because I knew that if I could figure out the property management game and, and doing that for others, that when it was time to buy bigger deals for myself, I would have a higher likelihood of success of, of execution. So I started buying uh, a few small deals at the same time, was managing for other clients, anything I could get my hands on where I didn't have to carry a gun, and I was doing everything. 
um, started from the bottom and started being able to buy larger apartment deals. And when I say large, I mean, my, my first apartment deal was six units Then I bought 35 and a 30. Uh, then I said, I'd never do another small deal again. And I bought 15 cause it was just too good to pass up. Uh, and then from there I started, um, syndicating. I did my first syndication of 60 units and I bought 112 and, uh, and once and, and all the while still managing for other people as well. That, that was really how we grew the company in those early days. Once we got to on-site staff, uh, size properties, there was really no turning back. Uh, it's pretty addictive. Fast forward to today, uh, we still do some management for others, uh, but we mostly manage our own assets now, and we're our, we're our far and above our, our biggest client, and uh, and that's uh, that's the shorter version of, of where uh, where I come from and and how I got here. Got it, got it. So is this three thousand five hundred units? Uh, is it all you? I mean, your company, or you guys do fee manage a part of it, or how is that? Yeah, so I, I own about 3,000 units. We're down to about 500 units we manage for others. It's not okay. really a focus okay. moving forward. We still have a few, a few uh, close partnerships that we like managing for. But really, the way I've built and designed my company is not to be a profit center of property management, more to be an execution machine uh, for my own wealth strategy. I think you and I have talked about this before. You know, On the property management side, I could be Scrooge and I could really be tight and I could probably make a 15% margin, but instead we focus that, that, uh, those dollars into our culture, our people, growing leaders within the organization, having fun, property management's not easy, you know, having great events, and, and really trying to, to create this beautiful machine of people that want to come to work, want to do a good job, want to stick around a while, and believe in, in what we're doing. We call it the BAMFAM. Awesome. Awesome. So let's go deep into the, you know, how you got started. And, uh, and it's just so interesting, right? I mean, you started, you know, you had that vision to start from property management first, right? Rather than yeah. owning assets, which is, you know, how like even like Ken McElroy started, right? He started being a property manager first. And then Ken McElroy was a, a huge influence uh, yes. in my, in my career. Yeah. Huge influence. Um, I read his book very early on and that was one of the key uh, influences for starting my management company and figuring that out first. Yeah. And I think he have mentioned it many times. I mean, if, for an audience who doesn't know who's Ken Macra is one of the big uh, largest owner of uh, multifamily in the U S I mean, he is advisor to uh, Robert Kiyosaki and he, he's a big guy, well-known guy, well-respected guy yeah. in the multifamily industry. And he mentioned very clearly in his book, right? I mean, to get started, you probably want to work for someone or go and work as a property manager. And I do not know how many, I don't think so many people are following it because people think it's just buying assets and letting it ride through. Uh, it's okay. But yeah. um, what did you learn from that experience? You know, starting from property management and going into an oh, man. owner. Well. You know, as a small, I'm, so I, I've got, this is 2011, 2012, I've got 70 units mm -hmm. uh, and I am everything. I'm the bus boy, the cook, the, the maitre d', I'm the leasing agent, I'm the, I'm the too, property manager, I'm the book collect, book, uh, the rent collector. I had a little bookkeeper that came in every other week because I didn't want to screw that up. Um, so I literally did everything first and, and learned uh, to be efficient with it and also learned, you know, strengths and weaknesses and, and made a lot of mistakes. I finally just decided early on that I knew I was going to make a lot of mistakes and that was just part of it. I finally figured that out in my, uh, my mid-20s that being an entrepreneur is a lot about failing forward, making mistakes and learning from those mistakes and not quitting. It's not a complicated 
sort of um, method, but it's um, it's the backstory to a lot of successful entrepreneurs. So I I just copied what those who had been there before me had done. Got it, got it. And I mentioned it in my book. Uh, I mean, uh, across all commercial real estate, multifamily is a really, really good asset class. But the hardest part in multifamily is property management, managing that oh, yeah. 300 or 100 units income yeah. stream from different people is just the hardest. I mean, you, oh, you, you know, Jay. You'd rather buy an office and have three tenants, professional tenants, right? And you're done, right? Yeah. Multifamily is the best asset class for, for mm-hmm. a return on investment on the planet until right. you move in the people. Yeah. Until you move into the, uh, you know, the hard job of multifamily, which is basically the uh, property management itself. And, you know, you figured out. Part. You figure out beginning itself uh, that, you know, property managers, I mean, you want to start from property management and go into asset management, right? So, but now, I mean, you and I, you and I know that you really don't make money in property management, right? It's no. basically a, a time consuming uh, job, <laughs> right? So the most then, important one, but I mean, very, in very time consuming, the most important job. Yeah, absolutely. The most important. And we do it for control, right? For control of our, uh, of our value. Uh, oh, absolutely. I, I couldn't imagine hiring a third party manager um, for my own assets. Uh, it's just the way we do things and the, the amount of control we have, uh, the ability to move pieces around. Um, for instance, we had one property um, that was suffering a little bit. Um, we were still trying to get the right management team in place. We took um, our best leasing agent in the entire company and we moved her across the state to to uh, do her thing at an asset that needed her her assistance. That's very easily done when you control the the management side of it. If you're out there and you're just another number to a, a third party uh, company, that's a, a far more difficult uh, solution to get. Right? They, they're they're not necessarily going to give you their best people or or move around their best people. Yeah, and I also think uh, property management is the best way to make deals numbers work in this market cycle, right? Where you know the market is is not like appreciating like what it used to be in the past five years. And you're giving away my best secrets, James. <laughs> I know <laughs> you kind of how we yeah how we get our value add picture to work is a, a big part of it is being able to manage these units efficiently uh, efficiently and knowing exactly what it's going to cost to run them, and and finding inefficiencies. Uh, and reducing expenses. Um, that's not the, it, it's, it's one of the three legs on the stool right now uh, for making deals um, uh, achieve target returns. No question. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, and I think, I think that's very important for, you know, that's, that's why we do vertical integration, right? Uh, because, you know, yeah. you want to do deals at this stage of market cycle where everything is, you know, overpaid and, uh, you know, people are bidding for high prices for everything. You know, it's just so hard to make you know, if you're doing a third party, right? So no question. So yeah, I mean, to be frank with you in the last <clears> one month, I have like four guys, four friends uh, who are syndicators who never had third party. I mean, never had their own property management. They called me for a meeting. They said, Hey, how can we do our own, third, our own property management company? And uh, I asked why. And they said, Oh, you know, all these guys are not good. All this third party. What I told you guys like two years ago. Right. And <laughs> I said, do not do it. But they say, no, we're going to do it, right? So, I mean, yeah, if the market is 150% and your property management is 70% uh, capable and market's 150%, your, your property management company capabilities are masked off by the market, right? So, but if it's the other way around, right now, you know, I don't think the market's at 150%, probably is 90, 80%, right? But now, you know, everybody's getting undressed on how capable they are. And now everybody's like, you know, scrambling to go and say, now they're seeing all the weakness of all the third party property management companies, right? So I agree. Yeah. 
Absolutely, absolutely. So come back to deals that we, you buy, right, in Midwest, right? So is it you are in Midwest and is that why you buy in that market? Well, I'm lucky. I, I live in a place that's really great to invest in right now. Midwest, is, it's steady. Uh, the markets we look at have been growing on average 3% a year for 35 years. They don't, they don't boom, but they don't bust either. And so we, we like a lot of these um, tertiary and secondary markets in the Midwest that have also successfully decoupled from the Rust Belt economies of old um, and have government, education, healthcare is big. Um, there's, there's some blooming um, in the tech space, R&D. There's some big insurance companies, financial services. So there's, there's these markets like Indy is a great example that haven't quite seen the, uh, the boom that some other uh, markets have, but they've just continued to steadily grow, which is really good on a, on a five to seven year hold period if you can find the right assets inside those markets. Yeah, Midwest, I'm not sure where I read it, but it's actually the whole Midwest is very stable in terms of economy. Yeah, yeah, it um, really has become that way. And yeah. also in the, in the B, B plus rental cohort, the percentage of rent to income is still in the in the mid to high 20% range uh, versus a lot of um, hotter markets where it's higher than that. So I would see that as a sign that there's still room to grow rents if you're uh, good at picking growing sub-markets within those markets. Got it, got it. Yeah, if you're able to identify the sub-markets within, that sub within the market itself, you'll be... The sub-market within the sub-market within the sub-market, right? It's, <laughs> well, it's, that's what real estate is, right? <laughs> Yeah, hyper-local. Hyper-local, yeah. And I'm sure you being local, you would be able to know, know a lot of areas on your own and, and you'll be able to figure out things. So uh, what, are the, what are the states that are you investing right now in Midwest? Or is we're it more so like far, a cities? No, so far we're in Indiana, Ohio, Illinois. Okay. We've got lots of sub-markets in these areas that, that we are targeting. Um, and then from there, there's certainly other states we've, we've got our eye on here in the Midwest as well. So the deals that you are looking, you are getting from this Midwest, is it through brokers or how are you guys through, through a relationship or how is that? We're, we're, we're at our level. So our typical deal is going to be somewhere in the, in the 30 to $40 million range. Okay. And all, all those assets are controlled by the brokers. If you try to circumvent them and, and start going direct to sellers, they're really not going to keep you on their deal flow list. So we use the brokers to our advantage and we get a lot of off-market deal flow from our beloved brokers. We've closed a lot of transactions with them. They know we're a, a, a great company to do business with. We never retrade. We close quick. And so we end up being on the, uh, the short list when they've got a seller that may be willing to transact but doesn't necessarily want to go full bore on market. Got it. Got it. So let's say today a broker sent you a deal. What would you look for in that deal that you know, may be attractive for you? Yeah. So we're, we're looking for newer assets that are late 90s, early 2000s. We like some stability because we, our, our fund dictates that the property can pay monthly cash flow to the LPs starting within 30 days of closing. And we like that cash flow to be current to the preferred return of 7%. So it's got to have cash flow day one. And then we still want to see some upside from value add, bringing in our management team, like you and I just spoke of, to um, manage it more efficiently, uh, but also to make some improvements. If it's mid-90s, it, it, it likely can stand uh, some amenity upgrades and some cosmetic upgrades to the units. So we're looking for, for those two pieces. And then third, we, we want a, a, a market where the rent is still growing. 
Uh, jobs are coming in. It's a good school district, right? You've got population growth. So those three components, if those add up to a reasonable expectation of uh, 15, 16, 17, 18% IRR on a, on a five to seven year hold, uh, we like it. We underwrite it to a 10. So, you know, if we're holding it more than seven years, we want to do two and a half to three and a half X uh, equity multiple net. But we really want to, we really want to harvest every five years if we can. So how do you determine the exit cap rate? I mean, I know it's, you can't really determine the exit cap rate, right? But in Midwest states, uh, how would you look at the, how would you underwrite, what is the market cap rate plus how many? Yeah, I know there's there's a lot of talk right now about exit caps and what makes sense. So we always just provide a cap rate sensitivity analysis. So we show what the, what it looks like if the cap rate goes up every 25 bips. We show what the return looks like. It's it's our suspicion that cap rates are maybe a little bit lower than they will be over the long run, but not as much as you'd think. The spread right now between the 10-year Treasury, which is at 150 today, actually it's a little less than 150 thanks to the coronavirus and, 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 and say a cap rate I'm buying at of five and a half or six, you're, you're talking about uh, a 500 basis point spread in some cases. In 2008, when the economy crashed, the spread between the 10 year and commercial cap rates was 50, 75 basis points. So if you think about the spread between what you get for leaving your money in a 10 year bond and what you get for putting your money in a multifamily is still very, very fat. So I don't see that spread going up unless interest rates go up a lot. And there's a growing consensus that interest rates aren't going up anytime soon. The debt would just get too expensive. There's too much deflation and global slowdown uh, in, in, in the macro global economy uh, to force rates up. They're actually continuing to have to ease and keep rates down. And so I am certainly in the school of thought that we are going to look much more like Japan over the next decade. We're not gonna have a lot of negative GDP, but we're not gonna have a lot of positive growth either. So rates will stay fairly low and there will be uh, demand for risk assets that offer a healthy spread above the 10 year. Um, so that being said, you know, I, I probably went down a rabbit hole. It's uh, no, no, no. Maybe, a little, maybe a little too deep. But with that being said, you know, we're typically looking at you know, 50 basis points on the, on the exit at five years, uh, but we don't get too caught up into that. We never show our pie in the sky projections to our investors. We never show what we think the maximum rent we're going we're gonna to return is. For example, I just bought a 272 unit deal, a uh, fantastic deal I'm excited about in a submarket called Greenfield, Indiana. It's uh, inside the Indianapolis MSA, third fastest growing county in my state. And I just have been organically raising rent since closing $150 a door on renewal and I'm painting and carpeting. <laughs> That's awesome. So I'm not really worried about my exit cap on that deal. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, and, and, and the thing is if cap rates, this is the other reason why you and I get 10 year, 12 year mm -hmm. uh, agency debt is because if there's this point in time where cap rates spike, I'm not selling. I'm going to hold the property in cash flow. Just think about it, James. If cap rates are going up, it's because of inflation. Interest rates are going up to fight inflation. Agree? Yep, absolutely. Well, if inflation goes up, rents are going up too. And the best part about apartments is that we get to reset our rents every mm -hmm. month yep. and every year. 
And so if I don't have to sell at this little point in time and I can raise my rents and wait for things to stabilize and cash flow along the way, I, I shouldn't be as worried about an exit um, in, in a specific year. Where people should be worried about exit caps are these shorter term you know, uh, bridge loan deals where they're, they're banking on a big rent increase in a refi or a sale two years from now or three years from now. I think that's taking on a, a measure of risk that would be a little, a little more than I'd be willing to bite off. Got it, we, got lock, it. we lock in that agency debt early. Yeah, yeah. I've been doing my agency. All my deals has moved to agency, you know, for the past two years. I've stopped doing bridge loan just because of the exact reason that you are, you are talking about. And yeah. I agree, bridge loan do have some risk. Uh, some people like it because they think they can flip it, but you, could, you do not want to flip at the end of the age of the market downturn. Yeah, and it, can already, it, can already, it can also flip the other way on you. Yeah, flip the other way on <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> So, you know, it's, and also, I mean, breach loans and turning around huge deep value add needs a lot of skills. And, you know, you just, you know, you are really banging on the market timing right now, right? So, yeah. And there's a lot of factor to put it, right? I mean, it's like a flipping a house, right? You're flipping an apartment, right? So, so is that how you started from beginning itself, where you have trained your investors to focus on the cash flow of the deal? And, and I have my, a lot of my investors now, they want like annuity, just give me a cash flow. I don't really, look at the pop at the back and just give me an annuity because you know six to eight percent return cash flow is an awesome return right and it yeah. can be much more awesome during downturn yeah so how we how we work with our investors is first we, we we educate them on how we mitigate the downside right why we do agency loans why we we lock in for a longer period of time than we plan to hold it um how are we you know why we're buying a little bit newer of an asset um, versus what we were buying in different stages of the market cycle. Then, then we, we look at the yield of the property and we look at with them, like you just said, you know, look at this asset. If nothing else uh, works, it's still going to yield seven, eight, nine percent, right? And so, and then we're looking at what's the potential upside down the road and, and in that order, uh, because people do want to see cash flow first and they don't want to lose money, right? And it's nice to be in a situation where if the stock market is down 30% or it's 2008, 2.0, uh, we might not be selling anytime soon, but we're still going to be cash flowing, uh, whereas other parts of their portfolio will be hammered. Correct. Yeah. At that time, that 7 to 8% would re sounds really, really good return, right? I mean, which is like you are basically getting it now and you're just maintaining it throughout your yeah, know, up or, yeah. Uh, market up or down cycle, which is yeah, awesome. and it's harder, but that's why we look for deals that have that seven, eight, nine percent cash flow very quickly, uh, and we pay monthly on our distributions, is because I like monthly cash flow. I absolutely. know you do, oh, absolutely. And, and, absolutely. and investors do too. Yeah, but is that how when you started like six six units, uh, you know, thirty units, thirty five? Is that how you were looking at the apartment? No, 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 no. I mean, then that would have been 2010. Okay, 2010. 2011. When I bought that property, it was bank owned, uh, REO. So that those were those were heavy value add deals. So early on, I was learning how to uh, reposition a property um, because that was the market cycle uh, that we were in, the, the stage of the market cycle at that time. And so I started off buying those. I bought some C properties, some Bs, and, and we're looking for more of those heavy value add deals. And as the market changed, we changed with it. 
Got it. That's very interesting. That's that's the part that I did. I did a lot of deep value add and you know proven ourselves, right? I mean, deep value add takes yeah. a lot of skills. I mean, even value add takes a lot of skills. How fast the turnaround? How you manage your contractor? How you manage your financial? How do you manage your scope of work and the schedule itself? It's a lot. Of, it's very complicated, right? I mean, a lot of people yeah. could have done it by skill. A lot of people could have done it just because the market appreciated, not to say because they did the job itself. <laughs> <laughs> I, and I'm sh- I'm sure you you are excited for those deep value add deals to come back one day down the road. Mm-hmm. But but uh, you know today a deep value add deal, we just underwrote one. Um, there was a, a moderate value add, maybe fifteen thousand dollars a door, and if everything went according to plan, uh, we would make a fifteen IRR. Then what's the point of doing deep value add, right? What's the point, right? Because I just I just bought a nineteen ninety eight vintage deal that's fully occupied. Uh, and I, I just told you I raised rents organically already, and that deal is going to do a 17. And so I, I, there's so much demand, and, and there's so many buyers trying to crowd in and buy these these so so-called value-add deals that we've gone to a different uh, strata within our our space uh, to find value. And then when those value-add deals get back up above a 20 IRR, I'll start taking another look at them. Got it. Got it. Got it. So you have changed your strategy just because of the market cycle and you think that is what the investors want yeah. and you still get really, I mean, there's a lot of investors who even want like three, four percent return, right? So if you're able to give them like, you know, 15% IRR or 17% IRR, they'd be, they would be, you know, ecstatic. Yeah. So, we, in, in my opinion, I've got to, I've got to be mindful uh, of the market and, and, uh, and, and work within my marketplace. There's opportunities in every stage of the cycle. Um, but you have to go right with the market, not against it. Yeah. So how are you competing with big, uh, big, big institutional players? Because they look for this, you know, 1990s, <laughs> 2000, and yeah. they'd be able yeah. to look at the same deals that you are looking at, right? Yeah, it's very hard. Uh, it's very hard. I'm very lucky that I started this several years ago uh, and that I'm, I'm, I've got a reputation and a track record with the biggest brokers uh, in my region, uh, which are all national brokers. And we lose a lot. We lose a lot to big guys. I just lost a deal yesterday for uh, a deal I loved it at 41 million, and some out-of-town buyers swooped in for 44 million, so they they can have it. Uh, <laughs> uh, a lot of times it's off-market, and then some of these sub-markets that we're that we're keenly interested in are off the radar of some of the bigger fish from out of town, and that's that's really how we're finding a lot of value. We know where the um, the emerging markets are. The old the old Dave Lindahl approach, right? Mm. Uh, we know how to spot an emerging market, and that's that's a key uh, to getting that value. And that's really, in my opinion, one of the only ways um, that you can get those returns up to where they need to be to continue to um, uh, please uh, your your existing investors and attract new ones. So let's go into details on how do you identify emerging market? Can you give like top three things that you look for in a, in a, to identify this as an emerging market? You know, there's a lot to it. Um, I'm lucky that I'm in an area that I want to, that I want to be in, but we're looking at infrastructure improvement is a big one. We're looking at population growth, job announcements, path of development. So example in Indianapolis, I know where the growth is going. Uh, I know where the good uh, submarkets are that'll that'll be the big suburbs of tomorrow. Infrastructure is probably one of the biggest ones. Uh, for instance, we're we're you know buying in a in a market right now where they're building a brand new federal highway over the Ohio River. 
that is going to bring more jobs and more commerce, right? Got it. It's um, that, that's just a few of the, the nuggets. I think the local knowledge the and local connections, right? Uh, just, just the local knowledge itself is just very powerful. Yeah, but it's not as hard as people think to, to, to find. I mean, if you're looking at the entire map of the United States and you're, you're like, okay, I got to find an emerging market, that's going to be tough, right? But if you can start to focus in on an area and say, okay, what's like one rung out? You know, where, where's the growth going? Where are the new big infrastructure projects planned? Um, where, where are the good schools out in those areas? Where are people moving to? Where's that, where are the housing starts? right? Housing brings commercial, commercial brings jobs, and jobs bring multifamily. Got it. Yeah, it's very interesting, um, you know, to see where is the path of progress and, you know, just go and target that where the big fish is not really yeah. looking at. Right? And, so. and then if you're buying below replacement costs, and you're doing it right, you should have a, a rental range that gives you a, an economic moat uh, between what a new construction project uh, uh, would have to deliver and would have to charge in rent, right? So if, if I'm in an area, like I told you about Greenfield in Indianapolis, you know, I'm, I'm in that area. And right now my target rental rents are maybe 1150, 1175 target rents after renovation. If I know in that market that somebody wants to come in next door and their rents have to be 14 or $1,500 a month just to get, just to get a shovel in the ground, then I've, I've got a decent defensive uh, asset. Uh, so new supply in, in, in many cases for me isn't, isn't as dangerous. It's actually can be a good thing. Got it, got it. Yeah, it's, that, that was my question because, you know, 1990, 2000 vintage sometimes can be competing with the, with the new supply, right? So Yeah, it can. So you, you really got to make sure your delta is three, four, five, six hundred dollars from, a, mm. for, from a, especially if you're buying A minus like me. You know, it used to be the difference between A minus and a plus was maybe two hundred dollars and now in a lot of markets it's 500 600 700 maybe a thousand and so if you can if you can figure out where to enter that market and have a, a large spread between you and new construction you're much more insulated from a plus uh concessions right yep yep Got it. Got it. So apart from getting good loans, because right now, you know, the interest rates are pretty low. That's the apart big from, thing, man. <laughs> interest it, rate is low right now. And, you know, apart from the buy itself, right, you're probably buying at a certain price that you think you can hit the, um, you can hit the investor target, right? How do you do value add? I mean, what do you look for in this 1990, 1990s, 2000 you know, vintage? And apartment, what are the biggest value add that you see that, you know, is, is your favorite? Oh, that's none of your business. <laughs> Come on, man, <laughs> reveal, the, reveal the secret. <laughs> <laughs> I have to work hard on 1980s, 1970 probably. I want to go to 1990. <laughs> but what do you see? I, I, I mean, how, what are the things? I mean, apart from the price, apart from the loan. Well, listen, I'll give, you, I'll give you a nugget, okay? I'll give you a nugget. Yeah, you can give fuel, a lot right? of a lot of operators are spending <laughs> way too much freaking money on unit improvements. Okay. Okay. And so we don't, we, we know how we, we, because we're vertically integrated because we're property managers and we know everything going on on the front lines and the trenches. We know where we're going to get an ROI. We know that maybe granite countertops don't get us the ROI that really nice for Mike. It does. We know that a, a yoga studio in a, you know, redoing a nineties, fitness center with new equipment and a little yoga studio is going to get us a much better ROI 
than um, uh, you know stainless steel appliances, for instance. So it's just knowing your market. It's knowing really the ROI on those improvements and how they impact rent. And it's different everywhere you go, right? It's not like you can just take what I say and go do it anywhere. You have to know in that market what works. So is it by doing market surveys where you look for? I mean, in terms of- the we don't have, Well, remember, we don't have to survey the market here because we, we, we're in the market. We, we manage okay. the properties. We have leasing agents all over the Midwest that, that are giving us instant real-time feedback, right? Yeah, yeah. But, so, we, we, but, but with that said, we, we shop our competition. So because we control our management company and we're part of the apartment association, it's a very, it's a very tight family in the apartment industry. And we really hire from within most of the time uh, because it's such a specialized job. And so my team can call anybody on any apartment project anywhere in the Midwest and say, hey, it's, uh, it's Kat from BAM. Can I shop you today? Right. Mm. And they do the same to us. And we all trade information on what's working and what's not. And that's, that's really what's one of the really cool things about property management is we help each other. Right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it is a very now, small Now, community. here's what we do. We shop ourselves. We, we secret shop ourselves. We're very upfront with our competition when, we're, when one leasing agent's calling my competitor and saying, hey, can we, can we trade what's working, what's not? What, what are you guys renting for, right? But then we secret shop our own people and they get, they get scored on how they do uh, by outside sales consultants. So you talk about two things. One is the amenity, where certain amenity are desirable, where you can you know, raise rent because it's more desirable. The second thing you talk about efficiency within the pipeline of property management, right? So, nobody, listen, nobody uses a gym, but it still sells people on renting. I know. It's crazy, right? I mean, I've, I've spent, you know, right now I'm being more cautious about what I spend on a gym because I know people may not use it. So I know there's a gym. Yeah, but it's the wow money. factor, James. It's the wow, the wow factor. factor. <laughs> Ooh, you've got a yoga studio. Maybe Some, I'll do yoga now. Yeah, I've been meaning to do yoga. I know. A year yeah. goes by, I never did any yoga, but I rented from that guy, James. <laughs> and I see my property managers using the gym, not my residents. <laughs> That's okay. Culture. You need everybody to be healthy, right? So Hashtag culture. <laughs> so let's talk about amenities. How do you, how do you decide on which amenity is more attractive? It's all a functional market. And it, again, it depends on, on what marketplace that we're talking about. But, okay. um, you know, so we're looking, we will redo pool furniture. A, a bark park is an easy one to put in if it's not already there. We're typically redoing the gym. Uh, a lot of times we're redoing the clubhouse with new paint, new furniture, maybe a couple computers. Um, you know, it, it, things, again, things that sometimes people never use. But just to give that that wow factor when they come in uh, to be able to close them on living there. So do you increase like, I mean, you mentioned in the beginning, 100 to $150 per door just by adding amenities and better it, management, know, I guess. Yeah, it doesn't always work out that well. And usually that 150 is coming from multiple areas We're we're raising certain fees. So maybe the owner hasn't raised pet fees or water fees uh, since they bought the property. I get, I get bad reviews on, on my website because we raised water fees to market, you know, but that's just part of it. It'll, it'll come from organic rent increases, uh, which is where we're just raising the rent at turn. Uh, and then it comes from um, quick uh, cosmetic improvements to the units on turn as well. Paint, countertops, uh, maybe new cabinet hardware. We rarely ever take out the cabinets, maybe new switch plates, uh, maybe new, some new flooring in the, in the kitchen and bath. 
uh, very light improvements. So among the things that you mentioned just now, what do you think is the most valuable improvements that, you know, is the biggest bang for the buck that all your residents love? Yes. Which one? (laughs) (laughs) You mentioned like five or six, which one is the best? I, I've given you more nuggets than I should, man. I, I, I feel so close to you. I feel like I got to tell you these things, but normally I'm like, you know, keeping this to myself. It, it, you know, it, it depends. Sometimes it's, it's organic, right? Okay. We bought a couple assets where it, it was a big company. They own 5,000 units, but they still ran it like a mom and pop and they were like 20 years old and they had, they, they never raised rents. If people don't move out, they don't, re, they don't renew them and, and increase them. We do. Um, another property, it was, uh, it was the amenity package that really started getting more, more, uh, income and other properties. It's, so it's, it's, it's all those things and it's, it's property by property, which one's going to move the needle the most. Uh, but typically you need all those, those components to get into that, that target rent, right? That 125, 150, 175, uh, that's going to help you achieve your, your target returns over the whole period. Got it. Got it. So yeah, that's very interesting. So let's go back to, you know, whatever you mentioned just now to the demand of the property, right? which is the residents, right? Do you think the residents in this 1990s vintage 2000 year bill apartment residence is harder than class C, you know, 1960, 1970 uh, residents? Harder, harder to manage? Harder to manage. Yeah. I mean, oh, more, more maintenance. Uh, it's, it, it, in some ways it's less maintenance. In, in some ways, but in other ways, the, the tenants can also be the, the residents. We don't call them tenants anymore, James. The residents, residents yes, exactly. The residents uh, can be can be more demanding, have higher expectations. So you, you've got to have the right people there that are used to managing um, that particular product with with the income um, of the of the resident that, that lives there. Yes, yeah, some people would would miss misunderstand and think that a plus is easier because everything's new and shiny and and oftentimes a plus is extremely management intensive because of the uh, expectations of the residents in some ways easier and and in some ways not yeah someone told me i mean one of my regional manager told me that you know a plus residents much more harder to manage because they have all this ego that they can pay they expect a lot of things from the property management company you know and and sometimes their delinquency can be high because they said i can pay next week you know you don't have to really come up yeah we 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 find the collections are 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 usually better got it got it so let's go to financing so on top of agency dad you also do hud dad right uh, and why did you choose some of the deals to be under hud loans hud's a great way to take a ton of risk off the table uh it's 35 year amortization and it's it's full am meaning you can hold that note for 35 years without having to refinance or sell so you, you take a lot of risk off the table the interest rates are somewhat lower, although Fannie and Freddie have gotten very competitive um, in the last couple of years. It allows you to get 85% loan to value on, on after repair value. So you can finance a lot of improvements as well, which is great in some, in some circumstances. So it's, it, if you want to hold a deal a, a while, like 10 years or more, HUD can be a, a good alternative. It's also very compliance heavy. There's audits, there's physical audits of the property. So you really have to know what you're doing. We, we like it just for simply for risk management. So we have several assets um, that are HUD. Big myth is that HUD means it's an income assisted 
uh, or excuse me, income subsidized projects, and that's actually incorrect. HUD uh, finances A, B, C, D assets. Uh, their mandate is to help provide rental housing. So it's available to a lot more people, uh, a lot more assets than, than people may recognize. Certainly not for everyone, but in, in certain circumstances, I think it's it's advantageous. We locked in our last HUD deal, November of 2018, $34 million deal, locked in with HUD. Our, our all-in note rate is 313. Wow. Yeah. Yep. And I remember November 2018, the interest rate actually for agency debt was pretty high because I did lock in some deals at that time when I think that was I think December, November, December is when it picked up and it came down again. So yeah, it was it was lucky we were able to catch the bottom of the uh, of that Treasury dip, which helped. Yeah, uh, but it was still still lower than agency. So how do you do? I mean, I know HUD has like a six months once distribution, right, where you can take out the money. How do you do distribution to your investors when you that have that kind of limitations? Uh, th- that's one of the downsides of HUD. You can only distribute every six months. That's why we don't use it very often. Okay. Yeah, so, it's a different investor profile. Some investors, they, they want to be defensive. They want to have their money in something and they, they want to have, you know, leverage, uh, but they want to have downside protection. So HUD works really well, um, but it does not provide uh, the same sort of cash flows that agency and, and Freddie do, which is why we, we typically use the agencies. Uh, for instance, I think I said earlier with our fund, it, it distributes monthly. I couldn't do that with HUD. Got it. Got it. Hey, Ivan, let's go to a personal side of you, right? I mean, um, yeah. why do you do what do you do? You know, for, for me, multifamily and growing BAM as a business is, is, a lot, um, is a lot of fun because the bigger it gets, the more fun I get to have. And it's, it's a great business for designing the life I want and designing the business in a way that fits into the, the life I want for myself, my wife, my family. And so I like the wealth and the freedom with real estate. Yeah, that's, that's, that's the crux of it, James. I've got uh, some, some big goals and being a good dad and a good husband and a, uh, a good member of my community and leaving behind a legacy. And for me, uh, owning real estate and owning a, a business to operate it is the, uh, the path. Would you do this for another 20 years? You know, I, it's funny. I got to sit down um, with uh, an older guy on the banking side uh, of, of our business of multifamily, took his bank public. I don't know what he's worth, but it's, it's over half a billion dollars. He's probably approaching 70. And he says, Ivan, you, you don't stop. You just play the game at a higher level. And I can tell you, he's having a lot of fun, has a lot of freedom, has a lot of time with his grandkids, travels wherever he wants for as long as he wants with whomever he wants. So I don't see myself retiring in the traditional way. I want to continue to just play the game at a higher level. Yeah, it is. So, it is so fun, right? To to keep on uh, improving things and you know. Uh, yeah, and I and I like to tell young entrepreneurs this, and, and young and, and people that are newer to the business. If you're getting bigger and you're you're not having more fun, you're not doing it right, and you need to you need to refocus on your people and your process, and so that you can scale it, right? Because none of us can just keep working harder. It's unsustainable. Correct. Yeah, that's one of the challenges that uh, we are having and we are trying to grow and uh, you know, it's becoming yeah. harder to find that process and people especially, right, to replace what we do. And we have certain expectations. People are the key. On, we have certain expectations on how things should be done, but not everybody is going to work like what we do, right? And, and we have the first coach, yeah, the first coach I hired four years ago, all we focused on 
was figuring out what my one thing is that, that I can, that, that if I spend most of my time on that, uh, I will be successful and then finding the right people to do everything else. And then the hardest part is, is from a guy that started myself and, and did everything myself, the hardest part, but the, the key is getting out of their way once you hire them. That's really hard. <laughs> and you're yes, right, that's the hardest part. So I, well, would Tim, I think Tim Ferriss said it best, James. You know, he, he, he wrote some articles about letting little bad things happen. Mm-hmm. And, and that's key. Um, excuse me. I thought I was going to sneeze. Uh, l- learning to let people ha- like make mistakes, even when it costs you money, and letting them learn and fail forward just like you had to do uh, is, is very freeing. And when you have a management company and you've, you've got fees coming in every month, it, it becomes a little bit easier to start to let those little bad things happen let people fail forward, let them learn, uh, and, and make sure they're not just coming to you for the answers all the time. Got it. Got it. Yes. The art of delegation and managing people. So, <laughs> you know, it's just so hard to master, right? So, well, if you get the right people, you, there's far less management. Absolutely. absolutely. You get the right people in the right seat. That's a yes. big part of it. Yes. Yes. I agree with you. Let me ask you one more thing. I mean, you started from you know six units to now you know almost three thousand units. Uh, I mean, you have gone yeah. through a lot of experiences. Tell me one proud moment that you can never forget that you were really really proud of yourself, where you think, hmm, this is something I will never forget throughout my life. What is that moment in your real estate career? Oh, so real estate category. Yes, yes. I mean, okay. something related to real estate, right? So yeah. Real estate family, I mean, anybody. It's a, just a human interaction, right? What, what oh, is the man. proud moment I mean, where you think that mm, I'm, I'm very, very proud that I did this and I can never forget this until, until the day I die? So <laughs> it was our first, um, one of our first bigger deals. It was, but it was only 89 units. I think, it was, I, think I bought that one after right? I bought. Yeah, it was, <laughs> I bought units, one. Absolutely. Well, I had bought 112. I already bought 112 units. And so I almost passed on this deal. It was only 89. I'm like, I, do I want to do a deal that's only 89 units? And, uh, and it was in kind of a rough area that was starting, we thought was maybe emerging. We kind of looked at each other and we were like, my partner and me, like six months ago, uh, this deal would have been huge for us. Why are we, why are we turning our nose up at this deal? We should do it. And we, we, we did the deal. We got it at a, at a, at a good price. Uh, and people thought we were crazy and it was, it was, it was a little bit difficult to raise the money. Uh, and uh, we bought it from a construction guy uh, that had already done all the heavy lifting on the value. Uh, so people thought, right. And what, what's left to do because this guy already improved it physically, but we had this suspicion uh, that we could manage it better. And two years later uh, we sold it for almost $2 million more than we bought it for. Ended up selling it uh, at a two and a half X, to our investors in two years, a little over two years. Um, and that was my first like really big home run. And I remember thinking, gosh, we almost didn't even do this deal. Yeah. So what, what did you guys do in that deal to make that much money since it's already done? We, we, got, we, we got a much better manager in place. Okay. Management. Uh, we got a really good maintenance guy in there. Uh, and, and of course we asset managed them and we were able to, we were able to raise rents. We got occupancies up. We reworked the utility bill backs to make more revenue there. So the cap rate on that one, uh, didn't compress all that much on the sale. It wasn't just like the market went up. We just got in there and, and turned around the NOI because this guy was really good at making all these physical improvements and he was a terrible manager. 
And mm-hmm. so we got all that straightened out and uh, a couple of years later had a, had a big win to show for it. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. I remember my third deal was like that. It's, everything's done well. I'm, I was trying to find out what's wrong with this deal. And it was a smaller deal from what I used to do. <laughs> yeah. so I, I'm trying to really analyze what's wrong. Something is wrong. I'm getting, but it was ran in and out of contract like five times and the seller was really frustrated. So he wanted someone to close it. So that's where I came in at that time. So Ivan, why don't you tell our listeners on how to find you, how to get hold of uh, you? Or your company. Uh, you know, uh, I'm all over the internet. Uh, the easiest way to find uh, me and my, my team is probably IvanBarrett.com, B-A-R-R-A-T-T. If you Google Ivan Barrett, B-A-R-R-A-T-T, you can find IvanBarrett.com, Barrett Asset Management, Ivan Barrett Education, which is a site I put together for accredited investors, but they all, they all cross-pollinate. So you find one, you'll find them all. I'm all over LinkedIn. And then uh, if you want to talk, 317-762-2625-317-762-2625. Man, is that yourself? Yeah. No. <laughs> that is my scheduler. My scheduler okay, will promise to get you on the phone with me. <laughs> That's going to be, I was surprised. That sounds like a cell phone, but it's not. But awesome, Ivan. Thanks for coming over. Hope you, you enjoyed it. And I'm sure. I had so much fun, man. I learned so much from you and I'm, I'm super happy to know you and uh, thanks for coming in and had value to the. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry to miss you in new Orleans. I, I, I can't make it, but oh. I'll, I'll see you at the next one, dude. I, I always enjoy our conversations and I, I gave my banker a ton of crap. Thanks to you. I appreciate that. Oh yeah, absolutely. I gave you that tip, right? Yeah. <laughs> awesome. oh, yeah. All right. So thank you. That's it for this episode. If you'd like to learn even more, check out James's free audiobook. It's the audio version of his best-selling book on passive investing. You can get the audiobook completely free, along with other valuable resources, by visiting www.achieveinvestmentgroup.com forward slash free audiobook. Also, be sure to join our Facebook group too. To find it, just do a Facebook search for Multifamily Investors Group. Thanks for listening. Join us again for another episode next week. See you then.